This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. A lot has happened last night in Kansas. Well, I guess virtually, but through Kansas, the Kansas Livestock Association and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association held a roundtable for EPA last night on the impact of the waters of the U.S. They were curious about how implementation is going to work. We're going to be talking to Mary Thomas Hart, the environmental counsel at NCBA here in segment three, about that interaction yesterday. It was two and a half hours they spent discussing WOTUS. She'll give us that update in segment three. Before we get into that, though, Dr. Paul Sundberg, the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center, will join us in segment two today. World Pork Expo is coming up and African swine fever still in the news. Dr. Sundberg keeps track of all those issues and he'll join us here in just a minute. But before we talk about all of those things, we continue to see the American farmer working to get that 22 crop in the ground. And my goodness, we're making progress. Joining me this morning to discuss it is Jackie Holland. She's the grain markets analyst over at Farm Futures. Jackie, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the planting progress we saw this past week. Jackie, how do we sit in corn right now? Well, after lagging behind historical benchmarks all spring, uh, we finally made it above the five-year benchmark yesterday. Um, Corn planting progress is now 94 complete, 94% complete. Um, across the country as of Sunday. Um, We're still seeing some lags up in the Northern Plains, North Dakota, Minnesota, and there probably are some prevent plant acres up there that go into that total. Um, So still, still some issues, but for the most part, corn planting is pretty well in the books for the 2022 season. Yeah, a lot of progress made here over this past week. Jackie, you mentioned Prevent Plant is factoring into the equation for several growers there in that northern belt region. I know you do the feedback from the field. Have you heard anything from growers? Has it been confirmed that folks are making that choice? Yes, I have. I've heard from growers in Minnesota and North Dakota that corn, both corn and spring weight acres have already been allocated to other crops this year just because it's been so cool so wet um just not the right planting window for this part of the world this year so um i definitely expect to see those acres shrink a little bit in the june 30th usda acreage report All right, Jackie, I'm going to come to you for those thoughts on acreage here in just a bit. But before we do, let's talk soybeans. Also, seems like we're pretty well caught up in soybean planting. Yeah, very much. We're just a couple percentage points behind the five-year average. Um, We we reported 78% of anticipated 2022 U.S. soybean acres were planted as of Sunday. Um, That was a 12% surge from the previous week. Um, but markets kind of greeted that metric this morning with mixed sentiments. Uh, the, the pre-report estimates were kind of expecting a higher number there. Um, 
but there, I think there's still going to be some good opportunities for those areas in North Dakota and Minnesota to catch up a little bit before we hit that crop insurance deadline on June, on uh, June 10th here, this coming Friday. Yeah, it is getting close. You mentioned that deadline's June 10th. And then, of course, June 30th, we'll get the updated planted acres. And Jackie, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit because Farm Futures was one of the first groups to highlight the larger increase in uh, soybeans that was expected to happen this year. Now that we've had such a struggle getting through the planting season, Jackie, have your expectations for this final acreage number changed at all as of yet? Unofficially, absolutely they have. Our team doesn't run a survey for the June 30th acreage report, um, so I don't have exact farmer data on that. But, you know, just kind of looking at how the growing season has progressed and, you know, talking with growers and our feedback from the field series, it, it really seems inevitable that we probably are going to see lower corn acreage up in these areas. Um, I think the one saving grace that's going to maybe cap those losses is the fact that there were lower corn acres slated to be planted in North Dakota and Minnesota already this year. So there will be a, there, I think there's going to be an impact, but I don't expect it's going to be quite as severe as what we saw with prevent plant acreage in 2019 and 2020. Okay. All right. We won't be as bad as those two years. Jackie, it looks like the trade is taking this update in stride. We've got corn higher on the day. Any other factors moving that market today? You know, there's still a lot of volatility from coming in from the Black Sea that's moving these markets pretty rapidly. Um, we've heard a lot of discussion over the last week of potential plans to help get Ukrainian grain shipped out of the country. Um, but, you know, markets are still kind of unsure about how willing Russia is going to be to let that grain flow through. And those are really kind of the big overarching factors that are contributing to, to some of these really uh, significant price swings that we've seen over the last week. Yeah, and Jackie, I mean, I know you have done a lot of digging on the Black Sea region. Farm Futures ran a whole series, Black Swan in the Black Sea. How do you foresee this working itself out? Is, is the globe going to find enough supply? Yes, we, you know, we definitely have the supply there. Russia is harvesting one of their largest crops uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, really. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen some really creative ways that they're finding to trade their oil. Um, you know, anything from kind of circumventing navigate our uh, sanctions to, um, I saw one report of a ship of a Russian tanker offloading oil into um, other tankers that in the Atlantic Ocean that are eventually going to go to China. So, you know, this, this grain is going to get out to global buyers, but it's going to take a little longer and it's probably going to come at a higher cost because it takes more time, energy, and money to get around some of these sanctions.
That makes sense. I saw that same story about the Russian tankers meeting up in the mid-Atlantic in the high seas and transferring cargo. Yes. And boy, people do crazy yes. things when prices get volatile, Jackie. And I've got a feeling this is going to continue, this volatility. Do you expect it to be with us all summer? Absolutely. I mean, unless we can see some sort of solid diplomatic resolution or, you know, even a, a bridge to a to a diplomatic resolution in the Black Sea, um, I think that would definitely take some of the volatility out. But based on some of the barbs that Russia and Ukraine traded overnight, I don't think that's going to happen in the near future. Lots of things to keep an eye on this year, that is for sure. This was Jackie Holland. She's a grain markets analyst at Farm Futures. And Jackie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Have a good day. You too. And folks, stick with us. Dr. Paul Sunberg, the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center, will join us after AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, Soil Date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <clears throat> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. 
I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining AOA today. Well, it is the second week in June, which means, folks, World Pork Expo is getting underway. Hog producers, hog researchers, pork marketers, anybody involved with the swine ecosystem is planning to come to Des Moines tomorrow through Friday for the 2022 World Pork Expo. One of the folks that is going to be there is Dr. Paul Sunberg. He's the executive director of the Swine Health Information Center. This is a group that keeps track of of the swine diseases impacting that industry domestically and around the world. And of course, that is a hot topic and has been for the past three years. Dr. Sunberg, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Good morning, Mike. Good to be here. Well, let's start. We've got some news with African swine fever. Of course, that has been on the topic of every hog producer's mind since certainly 2017 as it started to spread in China. Paul, we've got a vaccine in the works right now. Can you bring us up to speed? What is being researched? How would this vaccine work? For the last couple of years, they've been uh, field trialing a a USDA prototype vaccine in Vietnam, and they're looking for safety and efficacy. Um, So they're, they're really close to commercializing that vaccine in Vietnam right now. So it'll be on the market, I expect, within the next few weeks. Um, but there are some things about that vaccine that people need to know uh, because it's not, the, it's not the key to prevention. The vaccine doesn't stop infection. It does stop the pigs from dying, which is a worthy goal, but it, but it doesn't stop infection, and you can't tell a vaccinated pig from an infected pig by its antibodies. So uh, people ask about, well, let's use that vaccine to prevent African swine fever in the U.S., that's not at the spot we're at at all with this vaccine. This vaccine could be useful, and it's been shown to be useful in Vietnam to prevent production loss, which is a worthy goal. But I don't know that we're at the spot where we can say, let's use this vaccine to eradicate ASF, for example. Well, and I'm curious. I hadn't heard that about this vaccine. So it keeps the keeps the animals alive, I, I assume, reduces the severity of the infection. But Dr. Sonberg, if we have an ASF outbreak, in a herd, the whole herd would likely still be culled. Would would that be how you'd interpret that? Oh yeah, I think so. We're a long way in the U.S. or in North America from using this vaccine as a response to an outbreak. Um, that's right. If we get ASF in the U.S. right now, there'll be a 72-hour hold on any on any pig movement, and um, the vaccine would be way down on the list of things that we'd try in order to get control of that virus. 
Okay, so this is coming. Progress in Vietnam, you say a couple of weeks it might be available. And at that point, it'll just be available in Vietnam for the foreseeable future. Is that how these typically work in the animal health ecosystem? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it for the foreseeable future. There's production issues. You've got to produce enough to be able to market. And certainly they're going to focus on Vietnam first. Um, the Vietnamese government has said that they look forward to being able to export this virus and help other countries, other producers around the world. But um, right now we're in the, what I hear from Vietnam is that they're very much focused right there. Their production is such that it will probably stay there for a while, um, but at least it will be available and it'll be a, a commercially available vaccine that has been tested to be safe and effective. And those two things are really important. It doesn't revert to a wild virus. It's a modified live virus. So one of the issues is, could it jump back to being a wild virus? And it doesn't look like that happens. And the effectiveness part, that's what I'm saying uh, about being effective. It'll keep them from dying and it'll keep them in production, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily effective in stopping the infection. All right. And stopping that infection, keeping it off our shores is tantamount here in the hog industry. To that end, Paul, I know we've got African swine fever here in the Western Hemisphere. Can you bring us up to speed on how they're combating it in the Dominican Republic or what you've heard? Yeah, the island of Hispaniola, uh, the Dominican Republic and Haiti both have African swine fever. The Dominican Republic is in the middle of a control program. They're trying to do testing and depopulation of, of positive herds. They're trying to hold it in spots. The number of new infections in the Dominican Republic has gone down since it started, so that's a good sign. But they've still got a long way to go, and that means that it's still in the Western Hemisphere, it's still in the Caribbean, and that's still a heightened risk for the U.S., for Puerto Rico, for the U.S. Virgin Islands, for Mexico and the other countries down in the Caribbean. Paul, are these other countries in the Caribbean now actively testing any wild hogs they might find to see if it is spreading to other islands? In Puerto Rico, that's absolutely the case, yes, um, because Puerto Rico is a, uh, affiliated with the U.S. So USDA is down in Puerto Rico doing depopulation of, of feral pigs down there and doing testing, and they're doing a lot of work on in Puerto Rico to make sure that they do everything they can do to keep it out first. But second, if it happened to get in, they could find it quickly. So that's happening there. I'm not aware of that kind of activity in the other islands or uh, in the Caribbean. Um, the, the, even the ability to do testing and do monitoring, do surveillance is pretty, pretty inhibited down there. It's pretty close. So um, I'm not aware of a whole lot of activity in the other islands or the other countries other than Puerto Rico. Okay. Well, so hopefully we can keep African swine fever from breaching our defenses, keep our hog herd safe from ASF. But, Paul, we've got other viruses to contend with here for domestic pork producers. PERS has been an ongoing thorn in the side. I know you folks at Chick keep track of the trends in these diseases. What have we seen lately with PERS? Yeah, so the Swine Health Information Center through the Iowa State University does a domestic disease monitoring system. And with PERS, um, right now it is still an infection, still hot spots regionally in, in some uh, states. So Nebraska, Missouri, uh, Illinois, Iowa still have hot spots in um, the Midwest, if you will. But overall, 
Um, PERS is at a spot now where seasonality just starts to kick in and the number of infections um, in the U.S. start to go down. So we're within the normal range, what we'd expect for this time of year. It still is absolutely an issue with uh, local infections and for some producers, especially this strain 144 is an important thing. So there's different strains out there causing a whole lot of different problems. And that's something that um, we're trying to make people aware of so they can do the best they can do for biosecurity for their herds. Well, that's the key. And I remember the focus shifted to biosecurity and hog herd so hard after that PEDV epidemic several years yeah. ago. Before we chat biosecurity, how is PEDV? Do we have that under control such as it is? And, well, it depends on your definition of under control. It's at a very low level. Nationally, it is at a very low level right now. And, um, and so that's a good thing. It certainly isn't anything like what we saw in 2013 and 2014 and even 15. Um, but it's at a low steady level, if you will. And we have flare-ups um, in different areas, different farms, different regions. We continue to have flare-ups. So it's certainly not totally under control. It's under management, I think, is would be a better way to put it. We've learned how to manage that disease. We've learned how to manage that virus. And uh, a lot of those lessons are being uh, applied. So um, even though it's not gone, it's still there. Uh, I think that we're still having some trouble and, and learning as we go. As that disease has been under management and those biosecurity protocols have ramped up so hard, Dr. Sundberg, when you see a hotspot or a flare-up of PEDV, can you trace it back to perhaps somebody not following the biosecurity protocols in most cases? Oh, in most cases, that's the case. In most cases, um, you have to look at the biosecurity of the farms and, and the systems um, because PED isn't blown around in the air. It's brought into the farm either by the pigs or by people. So it's tracked in and um, you certainly have to review biosecurity. That's, that's a big thing for the industry is making sure that we're as hardened as we can. That's, an that's a deal for PED it's, as well as it's an, it's an issue for African swine fever. If African swine fever gets into the U.S. but biosecurity keeps it away from the pigs, we don't have an infection. So biosecurity is so important, not only for domestic diseases, but these foreign animal diseases as well. Paul, I know the Swine Health Information Center has done a lot of work on biosecurity. Can you send folks to the website so they can read some more information and, and learn more about how to better maintain their herds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Swine Health Information Center's website is swinehealth.org. Swinehealth.org, and they can find all things about emerging diseases on that website. Fantastic, folks. That's Dr. Paul Sundberg, Executive Director of the Swine Health Information Center. Paul, thanks for joining us today. And thanks for the work you do keeping American hogs safe. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, folks, stick with us. We're going to turn our focus to another protein, the beef market, when we return with Mary Thomas Hart, the Environmental Counsel at NCBA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. 
Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, wheat and the soy complex under some pressure here early on Tuesday in fairly quiet, dull trade, while corn is higher despite better than expected early crop conditions. There's very little correlation with early crop conditions and final yields, however. There's little news to really drive these markets early on. As we look at yesterday's crop progress report, we saw USDA say 94% of the nation's intended corn was planted as of June 5th, up from 86% the previous week and up from the five-year average of 92%. Now, the question is, has intended changed as the calendar has changed, moving us closer to 100% regardless of planting activity? Now, according to the data, USDA suggesting that 1.230 million corn and 1.793 million spring wheat acres remain unplanted in primarily northern Minnesota and North Dakota combined. Now, soybeans are still an option for many producers if they've given up on planting corn and spring wheat in the region, while canola will also be a more attractive option for those who are able to make that work. We could see other scattered losses of corn across parts of the country and looking realistically at possibly 1 to 2 million corn acres lost, but unfortunately we probably won't see that question answered until the fall. Numbers in the trade right now, corn for September up 7, 721 and a quarter. August beans up three quarters, 1636 and a half. Bean meal, bean oil mixed to lower. Chicago wheat, September down 18, 1086 and a half. September KC wheat down 18, 1158 and three quarters. September spring wheat down a half a penny at 1230. Meantime, over in livestock, cattle and hogs are mixed with June live cattle up 42, 133.25. August feeder cattle down 47, 171.50. June hogs down 67, 108. 55. Crude oil up a dollar 44 barrel 119.94. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. information farmers and ranchers need to know. 
KOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for joining us today for the past, oh, goodness gracious, 10 plus years in the ag industry. We have been discussing WOTUS, the waters of the U.S. rule. Currently, it is presently in limbo. Once again, there's a, a case uh, looking to help define it sitting before the Supreme Court. There is a pullback of the WOTUS rule from the Trump administration, the potential new addition uh, of a rule from the Biden administration. And all of this is taking place during this crazy summer. Well, EPA is doing some listening sessions, roundtables, they call them, on the impact of WOTUS and Waters of the U.S. bill. And last night, they held their only roundtable focused on the cattle industry. It was put together by the Kansas Livestock Association and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Joining me to discuss it today is Mary Thomas Hart, the Environmental Counsel at NCBA. Mary, thanks for joining the show today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk last night, roundtable, two and a half hours of comments on EPA's WOTUS rule. Mary, how did you feel overall the event went? You know, I think this this is the fourth roundtable, like you said, the EPA's hosted, and it was really nice to, to get some good agricultural perspective on the, the process of the WOTUS rule, the impacts of the WOTUS rule. Um, we've seen a lot of varying opinions on the Biden administration's work. And so I think, you know, we were first and foremost really excited that the Kansas Livestock Association was chosen to host a roundtable um, and that they had the opportunity to put together what I think was a, a nice range of opinions on the WOTUS rule and also provide some really solid examples of how an expansive WOTUS definition could impact farmers and ranchers across the country. Let's talk about that varied crowd. They had present their opinions to EPA. Mary, who all was in the audience? It wasn't strictly cattle producers, was it? Sure. There, there was a range uh, from state regulators to a couple uh, environmental or conservation groups. Agricultural producers were certainly participating. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to highlight that, you know, that was intentional. So this set up, these, these regional roundtables have run a little differently from what we've seen EPA do in the past. You know, usually EPA will schedule a roundtable or a listening session, and it'll kind of be a, a, a y'all come situation where any regulated stakeholder can show up and provide their, you know, two minutes of opinion I mean, EPA takes note of that. This time, EPA flipped the script and asked regulated stakeholders to organize roundtables and submit those proposals, and then EPA chose 10 of the proposed roundtables around the country. There were quite a few roundtable applications submitted, which is why we were so excited that KLA was chosen. And in order to be chosen, KLA had to show a range of opinions, you know, not that they were just focusing on farmer and rancher viewpoints. They had to show, you know, that they were including viewpoints from conservation groups and, and viewpoints from, you know, municipal regulators and state regulators. And I think they did an excellent job of, of organizing a roundtable that showed various opinions on the WOTUS rule, while also highlighting the specific needs of agricultural producers. And they got down to it in an interesting way. It, it, they broke the conversation down into three big discussion blocks, effectively uh, you know, starters to get folks thinking about this. And Mary, the first one was, what do the ditches and tributaries look like in your region? That seems like an odd discussion block to start the conversation off with. How did that help inform the rest of the discussion? 
Well, I think, you know, when we talk about regional roundtables, they really are meant to highlight the unique regional needs that we see across the country when it comes to effectively implementing a WOTUS definition. And every roundtable has had a different regional kind of uh, feature focus. So in the previous roundtable hosted by the Arizona Farm Bureau, we saw a lot of discussion about dry washes. In the first roundtable that was in the Great Lakes region, we saw a lot of discussion about prior converted croplands and farm wetlands. Um, but in Kansas, obviously, we're going to hear a lot about ephemeral features and the need to protect, you know, isolated stock ponds. So I think highlighting those regional features gives us a really good kind of jumping off point for a conversation that will remain focused on, you know, what farmers need in Kansas, in the in the Dakotas, in the Midwest, um, so that EPA, when when they go to implement whatever the final Biden administration WOTUS definition looks like, um, they have all of those unique regional needs in mind. Okay, that helps put it in perspective. I appreciate that because what I was really intrigued by watching the roundtable last night was discussion block number two, Mary, which is what feedback do you have for the agencies regarding the impact of climate change with regard to WOTUS? How did that question get answered broadly last night? I think we, we saw some varied answers. Everything from, you know, climate change is not, you know, in the text of the Clean Water Act and, and probably shouldn't be used in writing a definition for WOTUS to conversations about, you know, the impacts that a changing climate and changing weather patterns could have on how water flows over the landscape. So and I think some some valuable input there. Um, but, you know, NCBA and I think KLA is, is in this position too, we really do believe that whatever the the EPA and CORE put in the final WOTUS definition needs to be rooted in the text of the Clean Water Act. And, you know, I think, you know, climate change and changing weather patterns can be important in how we implement this rule. It might be, you know, important in, you know, seeing where producers need assistance in complying with the rule. But I think for determining the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, determining how expansive we use how expansive the Clean Water Act is, uh, climate change is probably not at the top of the list of, of factors. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I'm also curious because one of the things that we've heard from the ag industry and construction and everybody else who's been impacted by this is we need permanence. We can't have this rule changing every four years as folks are making long-term plans. And that had me curious about discussion block number three, Mary, which was how do the people in your community encounter the effects of the definition WOTUS? And was that brought up? Was the shifting nature of this raised to the EPA? You're, you're absolutely right that, you know, if you're a farmer and you've owned land since the Clean Water Act was implemented, if you've owned land since 1972, you have operated your farm through 13 different iterations of WOTUS, through 13 different WOTUS definitions. That's a new rule about every 3.2 years on average. And if you're a farmer or rancher out there in the country and you're trying to, to effectively plan for expansion or, you know, grazing practices or, you know, implementing or, you know, adding a new stock pond, it is really tough to, to make those plans more than a couple of years in advance, knowing that at any time the definition of WOTUS could change and how you're regulated under the Clean Water Act could change and, and swing really um, on a pendulum from 
extreme to extreme. And I think that's what we would like to settle more than anything. You know, having a finalized, settled WOTUS definition that regulated stakeholders can rely on, I think would be the most valuable thing that we could get from from the Trump administration, from the Biden administration, from the Supreme Court, really at the end of the day, that's what we want, is a reliable definition that can stand the test of time. All right. If that's the goal, Mary, how do you think we're going to get there? We've got the Sackett case pending before the Supreme Court. We've got this WOTUS rewrite happening right now. Tell us, what are the next steps over the summer in this WOTUS battle? I think the Sackett decision could get us a long way in, in providing some finality and certainty um, in, in the WOTUS, in the larger WOTUS discussion. So the Sackett case is going to consider which test from Rapanos, which was an earlier Clean Water Act case, which test from Rapanos should be applied by agencies and federal courts across the country. The Rapanos decision is kind of what got us, got us into this mess. So when we usually see a majority opinion from the Supreme Court, like a 5-4 or a 6-3, in the Rapanos case, the decision was a 4-1-4 decision, meaning there was no majority opinion. And there are two conflicting tests from Rapanos that view the Clean Water Act in very different ways. And federal courts and the EPA and the Army Corps have been trying to figure out how to effectively implement the Rapanos decision in a way that considers you know, one or both tests. Um, and that's what's really led to the confusion related to WOTUS in the last 15 years. So I think getting the, the Sackett opinion from the Supreme Court could go a long way in, in clearing up a lot of the confusion around, you know, Clean Water Act jurisdiction uh, across the landscape. So in the meantime, we are going to have another, what, six more roundtables here from the EPA under WOTUS discussion? Six more roundtables. So yes, the, the EPA is hosting 10 roundtables total, um, and they're all going to be focused in different regions. I think we have some in the southeast and the northeast uh in maybe california and out on the west coast coming up um so gonna hit gonna try to hit all of the regions around the country and like you said yesterday was the fourth round table in the meantime do we think the biden and epa will release text of a WOTUS rule prior to the sackets decision or will they hold off i believe that we'll probably get a final rule between oral arguments and hearing from the Supreme Court on the Sackett case. So usually when when EPA is, is going through a major rulemaking, like the definition of WOTUS, it takes quite a long time to read through and consider all of the comments that are submitted. You know, even, um, even when they kind of know the direction that they might want to move in, they still have to take the time to, to kind of process all of those comments. So for the Trump rule, it took about a year, and I think we can expect it to take about a year as well for the Biden administration. All right. We'll continue to keep an eye on those headlines and watch for more news from WOTUS. We've been talking to Mary Thomas Hart, the environmental counsel at NCBA. Mary, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, you can learn more at ncba.org. Stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up after this break. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft 
and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining me today is Jason Schwantz, Senior Vice President of Refined Fuels at CHS. We're going to talk about current fuel price and supply. Welcome, Jason. Now, tell us, what is causing this recent surge in fuel prices? The recent surge in fuel prices has been uh, twofold. Uh, one, coming out of kind of this COVID-type demand, things really, really got hard on refiners. They cut back. Things weren't getting produced because there wasn't enough demand out there. And with that, you know, along with that came some really, really low fuel inventories. Now we're kind of coming out of COVID, and you see people are traveling. There's a lot of packages going out via Amazon. We're seeing a ton of fuel demand causing some of these issues. The other thing is you have the war that is going on in Ukraine is also causing some issues because we're exporting some fuel over to Europe to help them out. That is causing fuel supplies to get even lower, especially on the diesel side, we're seeing that. Jason, how is CHS positioned to support farmers with this high price and this tight supply? We're actually positioned really well. Our two refineries, we have a refinery in Laurel, Montana, and one in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, we're actually running those refineries as hard as we can, trying to get as much diesel fuel out of them. Jason, tell us, what can farmers do to minimize the effect of their current fuel prices are having on their operations? Anything you can do to prepare ahead uh, for these high fuel prices. I think if you work with your local cooperative, you can take advantage of some of these dips in prices, get your fuel priced out, get it delivered, and make sure that you have the supply that you need there. That's Jason Schwantz, Senior Vice President of Refined Fuels at CHS. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, and everybody have a safe spring. And folks, thank you for joining us around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. 
In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back. You know, we talked at the top of the show with Jackie Holland about the acreage battle that's coming up, or I guess has happened, and we'll be seeing the results of on June 30th when we get the USDA final acreage, uh, final planting updates. In the meantime, however, USDA is reminding folks that there are still opportunities to double crop. Of course, USDA governments around the world very concerned about a global food crisis developing. They want to encourage farmers to be able to get as much wheat in as possible. To that end, the Risk Management Agency has issued an update. I'm going to read it directly so I don't get anything mistaken. They say the USDA's RMA, Risk Management Agency, reminds agricultural producers that for the 2022 crop year, there are options for ensuring double crop beans and other crops in counties where the following another crop or FAC practice is not available. If you are intending to plant soybeans or other crops after wheat in counties where double crop insurance coverage is not available, you do have the option to request coverage through their crop insurance agent if there is evidence of adaptability for the practice in your area. In addition, they go on to say producers in some areas of the county also have some areas of the country, rather, also have the option to request coverage for soybeans planted into wheat using relay cropping. Again, if there is evidence for adaptability of the practice in your region and producers may request an unrated practice, that would be relay cropping soybeans or a type practice, if you're double cropping, written agreement through their crop insurance company to ensure the crop. Producers requesting coverage for these practices for the first time, if you've never done this before, you have until the acreage reporting deadline of July 15th to get that request into your agent. So if this has been a tough spring, if it looks like double crop might be a possibility or relay cropping beans might be a possibility in your area, Talk to your agent. See if you can find the the proof that or the evidence, I suppose, that that practice is adaptable in your area and manage some of those input costs this year with prices being what they are to get that seed in the ground. If you can protect yourself a little bit, I think that is certainly worth looking into. And the reason, of course, this is such a big issue is the global food crisis. The the fact that grain trading around the world has been thrown sideways by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Now, for Americans, for a lot of folks here in, in our neck of the woods, it's not going to be an availability crisis of food. We're going to have sufficient amounts of it here in our country. It might be at prices we're not thrilled about paying when we go into the grocery store, but we have access to it. 
It is a very, very different story when we get down into Africa, when we get into parts of Southeast Asia, even parts of South America, where these elevated food prices aren't crimping budgets, they're forcing people to starve. In fact, this morning, it was reported by Reuters that nearly a quarter of a million people are facing starvation in Somalia. 213,000 Somalis are at risk of starvation. Now, when we talk about hunger numbers in this country, we talk about folks being food insecure. That means they, they might not know where their next meal is coming from. They might not know. They might not have the dollars in their account today to buy that next meal. But more often than not, Americans who are food insecure are able to get food somehow right and stay alive. This is very, very different. This is a very different metric in Somalia. These folks aren't food insecure. They are dying 213,000 of them, an additional 7.1 million Somalis, just about half the population of that country face acute levels of food insecurity. And again, that's that's worse than we ever see here in this country. That means they will barely be able to get the minimum calories they need. And they might have to sell assets in order to buy food. This is developing in Somalia. And again, this is happening. This is their fourth year. Their rainy season has failed. We discussed the drought in this country and how bad it has been and how harmful to producers and, and livestock producers it has been. Well, this is the fourth year of extreme drought in that Horn of Africa area, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, all those places are starving right now. In fact, 3 million livestock have died in Somalia since the drought really kicked into high gear in that country in mid-2001. So folks, we are going to hear a lot more about this food crisis. We are going to hear a lot of global leaders doing things they think are going to help address it. This conversation will be ongoing because even as harvest kicks off, winter wheat harvest in the U.S. and in parts of Europe, and of course, even in Russia, as Jackie Holland mentioned at the start of the show, they're, they're going to be harvesting a crop. It will leak out of those borders somehow, but prices are going to be elevated and a lot of folks are going to be struggling, particularly lower income folks in developing countries. So do not think we are done hearing about this global food crisis. We do have some other news coming out of Brazil I thought was interesting given the fact that we have such a conversation happening globally now with crude oil. Brazil's oil company. This is state-owned, means it's owned by the government. It's called Petrobras down in Brazil. Several years ago, it was the subject of a huge scandal resulting from bribes and they're paying off officials and all of this sort of thing. Kind of gave the company a black eye in the country. Now, for the past six months or a year, of course, oil prices have exploded. Gas and fuel prices in Brazil have been really, really high. And President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil has said that the company, since it's owned by the government, it is controlled by its constitution, and it has a social function. And he argues that Petrobras is not maintaining their social function as outlined in the constitution. And so he's looking to privatize the company. On Thursday, it's expected that Bolsonaro will make an announcement calling for analysts to look into privatization. Now, this isn't privatizing itself. He cannot do that as president of the country. In order for Petrobras to be sold, he would have to have uh, an agreement from Congress, and he would have to see some additional public support swing his way in order to make that happen. However, we will continue watching this, folks. We are going to see a big shakeup in the oil industry globally as these firms continue to try and find new ways to 
well, produce in an environment that's not terribly friendly to oil producers in the developing nations and to secure these high prices. We look around at oil price today, folks. I've got bad news. AAA says today, yet again, another record highest recorded average price for gasoline at $4.91.9. Diesel, another record today trading at $5.68 and a half cents. Folks, these prices are going to cause shakeups in every industry. Oil won't be accepted, and we'll continue talking about that vital input here on AOA. Join us tomorrow. We're going to check in with our friend Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at Stonex, and we're also going to talk with Jeff Johnston about how technology and regulations have combined to allow some change in the way rural America gets high-speed internet. So do be sure to join us for Wednesday's AOA. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.